Hello, my name's Jane Dacre. Welcome to this Medical Women Talking podcast. Medical Women Talking is a series of recordings of informal interviews with a range of women doctors from different specialties and backgrounds who've had successful careers in medicine. I'm a proud physician and have had the privilege of a very fulfilling career. As I get older and have reflected on my own journey, I've become increasingly passionate about helping other women to achieve their potential in medicine. Combining life and a career can be challenging, and it sometimes feels extremely difficult to keep going. The women in these conversations have all found a way to thrive and have achieved great things. I hope that you'll be inspired by their stories. The podcasts are available to download in any order so that you can listen and be inspired whilst doing other things. Happy listening. Today I'm talking to Professor Henrietta Bowden-Jones, known as Etta. Etta is a psychiatrist and she's a specialist in addiction disorders and also gambling. She's had an extraordinary career having started life in Italy and has lived between Italy and England. She has two children and is now on the Board of Trustees of the Royal Society of Medicine. So she organises a huge number of events for women and others in medicine. Listen and learn. If you could start by giving me a kind of summary of your career, let's talk our, talk our way through your career. Well, my career really began um, at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, uh, when I arrived um, as a junior doctor, and I was the only full-time woman in a in an office with 12, 12 other uh, young psychiatrists, um, and um, I fell in love with the hospital immediately. It was a Charing Cross rotation that I that I was uh, that I belonged to, and um, it was there were a couple of part-time. Um, tr- flexible trainees, as they used to call them, um, uh, who were women. But really, I, I ended up navigating my way into a room full of uh, uh, rugby playing, uh, you know, very nice colleagues, male colleagues. And so it was an interesting beginning because um, uh, it wasn't just about uh, navigating a new subject, training in psychiatry, um, with wonderful, wonderful consultants there uh, who were um, supportive and who had great academic sessions, etc. But it was also navigating, I suppose, the uh, the gender issues that started very early. You know, I arrived and someone said, "Welcome to the rotation of the golden boys," and I said, "What about the golden girls?" And they said, "Oh, there aren't any. There are only." couple of part-time people here so that was a sort of thing um and and yet and yet I I will say that I have remained in the same trust so I did I trained on the Charing Cross rotation for the SHO years then moved to the Charing Cross and St Mary's um uh, specialist registrar rotation for those years um so managed still to do my jobs around the Charing Cross and the Chelsea and Westminster and St Mary's so it was really very yeah I loved it I loved it uh, and and it felt just right in terms of the connections. I'm a very people person and I tend to uh, 
keep my friendships, um, not just with people outside of medicine, but very much my colleagues too. So it was a great delight for me that I could continue being in the same mental health unit, that I knew the nurses, I knew the OTs, and that my colleagues kept on rotating around, but there'd always be people I knew. So I loved that. So it's now been uh, I guess it's been 25 years uh, in the same trust, and I'm still enjoying it. And of course, uh, the, the, you know, the CNWL, Central Northwest London uh, Trust, um, uh, does tend to keep its workers. And so there are many of us who, go, who are just getting old together, which is lovely. Some of the managers I work with, I've known since we were very young. Um, so that's really, and so when I was there, I had a fantastic um, uh, consultant in addictions called William Shanahan. I've spoken to about him before when I was interviewed for a career interview by the BMJ. And I said, you know, he really was inspirational. Um, and so uh, I ended up choosing addiction psychiatry very, very much because of his um, teachings and um, and he would be talking to us in our training academic training afternoons way before I had to make a choice when I was a specialist registrar about what CCST to choose but it was very much about his trips to Colombia and the drug cartels and what people were using when uh, you know those were things that really influenced me in relation to training there were other things too to do with my life and people I had known who had ended up using drugs some had died some had ended up in rehab I, I did know many people from, I'm half Italian so my in my from my Italian life I, I knew people during the heroin epidemic who had become heroin users and, you know, had suffered the consequences. But I do think William Shanahan was really the person who then, who he was then a medical uh, uh, director for a long time for addictions. Um, and so a real inspiration. Um, when I um, when I started my consultant job, I knew because I loved film and art so much, I thought, well, I can't think of anything better than being an addiction psychiatrist in Soho. And this was like my kind of, you know, dream thing. And then one day I got a call saying, um, there's a job going. It's um, an addiction psychiatrist in Soho. And I said, well, are you joking? You know, and they said, no, no. I mean, you've got to apply for it, but there is a job um, going. So so I applied and and I ended up inside the old hospital for women on Soho Square, which had been turned number one for history, which had become um, uh, a health centre. And I ran from there the Soho Rapid Access Clinic, looking after the homeless drug injectors in um, um, drug users in uh, in Soho, um, and, uh, and 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 at the same time, I also used to look after the people injecting um, drugs at St Mary's from a porter cabin. So it was all very. <laughs> frontline and very different from the work I do now Jane um, but it was extreme and what I will say about those years uh, was that after the comfiness of the lovely training on these two rotations um, uh, and after all the research I had done because I had applied for research fellowships I'd won research prizes at Imperial College young researcher um, you know and stuff like that arriving as a consultant in the homeless addiction services what was quite intense. The people had suffered everything. They had started life 
without any winning chance of doing anything very much other than survive. And, and I've never forgotten that, really, um, how how some people, you know, uh, just start, start fighting from when they're born, really. Um, and that's, I suppose, one of the, the things that made me realise how much I love my job was that I never gave up. You know, I, later on, I was running the inpatient unit in Westminster for all detoxes for Chelsea, Kensington and Westminster. I did that for several years. Any detox was NHS was coming through me. And, um, you know, and you could have given up, of course, because these were miserable stories and people were coming back and back and back, you know, and amphetamine and dry, you know, all sorts of, you know, opiate and alcohol. And yet I just kept on feeling, you know, positive about treating them. Um, when I eventually moved on to dealing with behavioral addictions, um, I never missed doing that job. I felt I had given as much as I could, probably. It was such a miserable, you know, it, it was difficult. Um, but I was really pleased that I had done that. Um, so if I take a step back and talk to you, because I've, as you know, I've had parallel lives. I've had a clinical life, but I've also had a very research-based life. And my research informed the rest, it really informed everything I ever did, really. I was very fortunate when I was, um, uh, as, as a junior doctor at the Chelsea and Westminster, um, they uh, advertised, um, Imperial College advertised for a six-month research fellowship. And I thought, actually, you know, I'm not feeling very taken seriously here. There are too many golden boys and no one seems to sort of take me for you know, how important I feel about being here, becoming a psychiatrist. What am I supposed to do about this? And I couldn't work it out, really. Um, and then I realised, actually, if I went for this research fellowship, I, I might be taken more seriously. You know, I used to swan around. I was young. I, I, you know, I wore heels and, you know, slightly flared trousers. And I swanned around being half Italian. And I think people thought, well, this woman, you know, does she think about medicine or does she think about shopping? You know, it was that sort of thing a little bit. And I went to the cinema a lot. I loved art. I could see how easily they might have been mistaken about me. And I thought, I'm just going to put them straight. So um, the time came for this interview. Um, and I was due to go to New York, taken by my um, husband then, or my boyfriend. I think he was still my boyfriend. I can't remember anyway, my, my now husband. And, um, and I was due to go to New York. And I said to him, I said, look, there is a big issue. I'm going to go for this very serious research fellowship. And unfortunately, I'd like to go. Unfortunately, it's during, it's at the same time as you've, you're taking me to New York, you know, for this big treat that we've been waiting for, for many, for many months. And to his credit, and this is why I chose the right husband, he said, Etta, you know, this is such a big thing for you. I can tell you really want it. And I said, but I just want you to understand that I probably won't get it because there are quite a few of these, you know, colleague, male colleagues going for it. And he said, but yeah, but you will always look back and you'll know that you had a go at it. And so, you know, I did one of those things that I've, I'm known for, which is to totally go nuclear on the academic side and I you know and I got I got the post um, and it started a very different life for me a because people were like 
blimey, here's a, you know, this woman in high heels who was swanning around is now doing a, a full-time research fellowship at Imperial on the ventromedial, ventromedial prefrontal cortex. You know, um, that's changed our perception a bit. Um, and so I was taken out of clinical work for six months. I had to do my own calls at the Charing Cross, which I loved. Um, so I spent nights in A&E looking after all the emerg psychiatric emergencies once a week. But the rest of the time I was free to do what initially was a research fellowship um, and later became uh, my medical doctorate. Uh, I needed to change my supervisor because I needed someone. In fact, it was Professor Eileen Joyce who then moved moved from Imperial to the to Queen Square. Um, but um, and I worked very closely with the Cambridge with uh, um, neuroscience department because uh, Barbara Sahakian, one of the greatest neuroscientists uh, in the country in decision making, was a great inspiration. And later, when I did all my um, later doctoral research, she was indeed the person whose tests I used, neuro neuropsych battery of tests I used. Um, so there you are. And then I won this prize, Young Researcher, again, Imperial College. And, and then, of course, when I ended up choosing behavioral addictions for the second part of my career as a medical doctor, as a specialist in addictions, I chose it because it was the findings from my doctoral work that pointed to me that there was a bit of the brain that really wasn't working as well as it should in a population which turned out to be a population of people with gambling disorder at a time when in England no one knew about gambling disorder. You know, I had been fortunate to be on one of the best addictions rotations in the country and no one had ever mentioned gambling to me. So it really didn't exist. You know, the Royal College of Psychiatrists knew nothing about it. So again, I spent, I think I spent six months uh, writing, I would say to you, maybe a thousand, if not one and a half thousand index cards on gambling. Uh, I collected information from all over the world and there wasn't a single thing I didn't know about gambling disorder at the time in 2000. You know, by then it, had, it was later on, it was the early 2000s, but um, it was, no, it was maybe 2006, 2005 when the Royal College of Psychiatrists said to me, um, Westminster is um, having to make decisions about gambling and there is no one in the country other than you who knows about gambling since you're obsessed with it, will you become our spokesperson? And I said, absolutely, yes, you know, and then I was inundated with, of course, what I didn't realise was that a spokesperson meant I had to speak on behalf of the college to all the media with whom I, for whom I had, I'd had no training. So I ended up, you know, with my public engagement side evolving very, very rapidly with much anxiety initially on my part because I went from looking at index cards knowing what I knew academically that I'd been very carefully sort of collecting to having to convey the importance of various things to journalists who then wrote about it often. You know, I, anyway, I, I, it was a steep learning curve, Jane, but one that um, suited me well. And um, and and uh, and I enjoyed it greatly. And of course, as you know, now I'm national clinical advisor for NHS England on gambling harms. And I my clinic that I first set up in 2008, and my clinic that was the only one, the National Problem Gambling Clinic, 
was the only one for over a decade, is now has now been replicated 15 times across the whole of the country. And I spent much time in Westminster advising politicians and the House of Lords. Uh, but it was a journey that started very much with the college, to whom I'm extremely grateful um, for giving me the Psychiatrist of the Year Prize uh, Award and, and lots of other things uh, for recognising the help and all that I've done. Uh, but they were always there supporting me, as were the comms department in my trust, because, you know, of course, these demands came thick and fast when Gordon Brown wanted to open more casinos um, and, you know, and things were happening uh quickly in relation to what products could be allowed and not allowed. And I wanted to protect, you know, the whole population, not just the people who had a problem. It wasn't just. So my focus shifted and I started thinking, OK, um, uh, I need to think about the wider population and about prevention, not just about people with problems and how to treat them. And I suppose that's a story really of the last few years that I, I thought, well, now there are other people helping me to treat patients. Um, of course, I want to triple numbers in treatment, and, and we are trying to do that by opening more clinics. But ultimately, my job now when I am in Parliament so regularly is to try and prevent harm, uh, to start, try and stop people from having harmful products and reaching, you know, and reaching vulnerable people and reaching the young who are seeing adverts and, you know, being impacted by social media and, and encouraged to gamble and spend money that no one has so so i suppose that's a story in itself fantastic so so i mean it's interesting to see how you've become so impactful in relation to that what why what do you think it is that that made you be able to do that um i think uh, so you know not I don't think I've ever actually been asked this question before, but but I have an answer for you immediately. Um, I think that it's a combination of having had, you know, an incredibly studious mind uh, and an analytical and rather at times people laugh at me for my precise nature. So you know, if I'm going to learn something, I have to know all there is to know about it. Um, in order to feel that I really grasp it. So in the way that, you know, the thousand index cards are, a, you know, <laughs> are an example of that, which could be deemed to be slightly obsessional. But if you are going to de you're, if you're going to describe yourself as an expert, then, you know, of course, then there's a key. So there is that side coupled with a very extroverted nature and a people nature so the communication side so my comms department have always been very happy because they've got someone who can do public engagement by conveying all the stuff they know uh, without having the problems of not being able to have a dialogue let's say um, so that's been um, fortunate and people often say psychiatrists maybe are fortunate in the sense that sometimes we tend to be slightly more um, you know, extrovert. But, you know, my my role model, one of my greatest role models is Simon Wesley, who is probably the only person I know who's more extroverted than I am. And uh, and he, <laughs> we bow to each other in terms of how much, you know, how much we sort of enjoy people and company and communications, etc. But he really, he really is, um, you know, a guiding light, always has been one of the absolute best uh, psychiatrists of our generation, the best, I think. Fantastic. Um, 
yeah yeah and 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 so i think if you've got the skills to know the stuff retain the clinical and the neuroscience sorry that's the other thing more seriously because i think the reason why i was able to convince people to give me the funds to continue building and building and building on this national expansion is because i had an understanding of evidence base and science and i think one of my greatest bits of advice I could give to people listening to this is please don't shy away from the word research. All research is, is evidence-based. And you can choose whether you want to do more neuroscientific research or more clinical work. But essentially, if you want people to take you seriously, if you want people to really build on what you've started, you need to show them that it works and you need to show them that what works lasts. And you can't do that if you can't expect others to do the research that you need to give evidence on what you're doing. And so and so when I hear people, and by the way, the thing that really worries me is that there are a lot of female colleagues I know seem to sort of defer, you know, oh, I'm no good at, I'm no good at research. And I, I, I just want to say to them, well, of course you are. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a scientist. You wouldn't have done sciences. You wouldn't be in this position. So I think there's a big job we have to do, Jane, in breaking down these um, walls that are often actually present, put there by I don't think these people are putting up the walls themselves. I think there's some society, still some societal uh, label that allows people to be excellent clinicians as women. But are they really excellent researchers? Are there enough role models out there? Are we speaking enough about what we can do well? So there's a lot of that. Yeah, no, maybe maybe not. I'm interested that you started your story when you'd already decided you were going to be a psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you how did you get to that stage where um, did you go to where, where did you go to a medical school how did it how did you get inspired at the early stages of, of your it, career well it's a um it's a i'm so glad you've asked me this so i was born in italy and raised as an italian child uh, by an Italian mother and an English father who was very English. He, you know, he was a Cambridge um, uh, undergraduate, graduated there and then left for Italy almost immediately. Um, and he only ever spoke Italian to me and so did my mother. So, so we were raised, three children, as Italians really. Um, and it was during some very difficult political years was I was growing up in Milan when the red brigades were blowing up everything and shooting people we knew murdering people we knew um, that my parents suddenly thought mm, you know I think we need a change of tack here uh, but by then you know I'd finished my primary school I was finishing primary school very happily without a word of English seriously without a word of English and then they said well actually you've got to go to boarding school now um you, you know take a year a year and a half and then you've got to go we've got to teach you English and I was very very studious and I and I you know I had my desk in my bedroom I I, I had index cards at the age of eight I was making notes and uh, and I was um cataloging things uh, goodness knows what. Initially, they were just toys, and then it ended up being flowers. But I already had that need to to assimilate knowledge and to, to tidy it up in an orderly fashion, and to be able to to and and I think part of it was the chaos that was going on around. You know, I had very 
socialite parents who didn't work, who who had, you know, they were just at parties every night, etc. So and I, I had a very different personality. You know, I needed my uh, my school. My school was, you know, really special for me. Um, and so suddenly, you know, they, I was being told I had to. Yes, I could carry on being at school, which is what I love, but I had to do it in a different language. It was very traumatizing, very so difficult. So did you, did you come to the UK then? Eventually to, to I go. did. Eventually I had a horrendous um, year and a, and a half uh, being taught English. And of course it was all done so quickly because they had to get rid of us. You know, they had to leave, get us to leave Milan. And with me, a lot of my generation with expat parents were sent away to America, to France, to Switzerland, to boarding schools, because it literally was, um, you know, warfare out there in, with the Red Brigades against, you know. So anyway, so so I was then very anxious, trying to learn a language that I knew nothing about in an environment that I didn't like, with children in an English school in Italy that I didn't feel any affiliation with. And then after that, to, to sort of complete the picture, I was sent to boarding school, to a boys' boarding school in Wiltshire. Now, I, I, I do, how, having said that, you know, it was traumatizing for me to be leaving my family. I was very much an Italian girl, you know, very attached to pe parents and had no intention of leaving home. And suddenly I was sent away for months on end to a country where we never went. Um, and um, it was very difficult. The school were wonderful. Um, you know, I, I still go back now to reunions, but it was a boys' school. Um, and there were 600 boys and about 8, 10, 15 girls. You know, I mean, it was nothing. When I started in 1977 at that school, there were almost no girls. They got them eventually through the sixth form and eventually in the middle school, uh, they started coming in. But... Uh, it was, you know, looking back on it, you wouldn't wish that on anybody. No. So it took me, you know, I arrived at medical school. So then my brother and sister escaped back to Italy as soon as I, they could. And I did too. And we, you know, I went to, you know, eventually I went to medical school in, in Italy, in Pavia. But realising when I was there that my English background by then had been quite formative and I had loved my time in England. And so... I was stuck, you know, as many children of two cultures are, uh, without really quite understanding where you should be doing what. And so luckily for me, during medical school in Italy, I had come to the Charing Cross and I had sat in and I had participated in many, many ward rounds. And I had been taught by people like George Ecos, who are iconic psychiatrists of our, you know, um, contemporary times. He had been instrumental in making me see that I that I should train in psychiatry and I should so do it yeah that's why and, you came back yes yes so I came, came back. back I came back but you but know why yeah, psychiatry because of the role models there I was always interested always interested in the mind and and I and I really felt as if um everything that had come before had not really been right you know psychology had not it wasn't right psychotherapy wasn't right because I was very very studious in a kind of analytical way it was really neuroscience that really was important to me and I remember I was doing some training uh, in um uh, in my early 20s, trying to learn about uh, psychotherapy, because I thought maybe that was what I wanted to do, uh, psychoanalytical psychotherapy. And I was sitting in at Free and Barnet in some of the 
um, uh, medical uh, training sessions there with the psychiatric trainees. I'd ended up managing to get there through Professor Mann from the Institute who had kindly invited me and, and Klaus Fink, who used to um, be one of the people teaching psychotherapy there. And both of them said to me, Etta, you're made to be a doctor. You have to, you have to go to medical school. And that's how it all ended up working out so well for me. Um, psychiatry and uh, neuroscience uh, were very psychoanalytical in Italy. And I knew, therefore, that if I was going to do that, I would explore this country's educational uh, you know, possibilities in terms of training. And um, so I've ended up in a crazy way with my brother and sister in Italy. But so when we all left, because none of us, you know, we felt we'd had we'd been forced to come to England, whereas I'm now here out of my own love for England and everything it means to me. Um, it means so much. Um, so I'm more English than anyone. My husband's always laughing and going, oh, you're such a royalist and you're such this and <laughs> such that. And I say, yeah, I almost feel like I've earned it, you know, because I had to sweat for it for so much. Well, you know? So can I can I sort of move you? You talked a yeah. bit about some difficult times when you were when you were going through school and and getting to medical school but once you once you did that as a uh, an Italian English woman going through the system in the NHS working as a psychiatrist you're very very positive about it are there things that you might share with people that maybe were more difficult times and how you got through them um you know, probably the hardest thing, and, and, and I will say that um, I did take upon myself that moment when I decided I needed to be taken seriously. I did feel somehow yeah, that there was that risk of frivolous. So that was a moment, but it wasn't very difficult. It was just that I thought I needed to change things. A very difficult moment came when I was pregnant, and um, and I really wanted to do some research, and I was... Uh, someone very kindly at the mental health unit at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital um, said, well, yes, I can I can uh, definitely include you in some research. Um, here is a list of suicide notes written by people who've killed themselves on the London underground. And why don't you use your maternity leave to catalogue them into, um, I promise you, I'm not, I'm not making this up. Uh, to catalogue them. There's a whole shoebox, they're handwritten notes, you'll do a great job and that will be wonderful. And and I said, fine, I wanted to please, I've, I'm always a P, I'm, you know, I was always, you know, authority for me has always been, since I was little, I'm like, you know, I really want to, you know, please the people. Who are, so I was like, yes, of course. And I found myself at my desk late at night in the office crying and crying and crying, thinking, oh, it must be because I'm pregnant. And eventually it dawned on me that actually I'm pregnant and I'm reading suicide notes all day long in any spare time I've got before work, after work to try and cut. So eventually I had to go back and see this person and say, look, you know, <laughs> I'm not. Do you know what I said? I didn't say I don't think you've offered me the right research. I said, I don't think I'm made to do any research. <laughs> oh, I mean, you know, so that wasn't easy. But um generally speaking i i only you know for i personally i have found psychiatry almost sort of gender blind if i could say that i i have not i i've i found it the most meritocratic of places if you wanted to work you could work and if you worked and you work well 
you were absolutely rewarded for it. And, and I know, because as you know, I was president of the Medical Women's Federation in recent years, how difficult a story that was for other colleagues of ours, female colleagues in other professions. But personally, uh, uh, you know, I didn't have any problems at all with anybody in relation to my gender. Um, I, I think maybe early on at the beginning, when I arrived with a, you know, a bit more of an Italian accent, um, I felt, I remember doing my part one membership exams and thinking to myself, I mustn't fail this. I mustn't fail this because if I fail it, people will see me as someone who can't, who's not good enough to be in this country. And then I think, goodness, if I thought that then, imagine what people must feel, you know, anyway, luckily there were four of us doing the exam and I was the only one who passed and all the others trained in England. So that did that job very well at the, you know, at the Chelsea and Westminster that day. But, um, but you know, I did have those thoughts and it's only now that I'm older, uh, old, and I can talk like that. So with such clarity about what it meant to pass that exam, it meant that I would be accepted. And then of course, the senior consultants were like, ah, well, we always knew you had it in you. And I thought it took an exam for you to see, yeah, it yeah. you know, something like that. But anyway, so that's, I think England was more xenophobic then in terms of letting it, you know, sort of maybe um, amongst, um, you know, the older colleagues. Um, but but, but it, was never, it was always very subtle. It was never very, you know. But also um, being married and having children and working within the health system, some of the some of the people who are listening to the podcast might be interested in in how you coped with all of that. Did, yeah. did you, for example, did you work part time? How did you fit yeah. it all in? How did you make it work? So, again, because of my personality, I would I didn't allow myself to work part time because I didn't think people would take me seriously. And that again, remember, this is many years ago now, and they didn't take people seriously. I was in the office with 12 of them. I knew they didn't take the flexible trainees at all seriously. So um, things, thank goodness, are so very different now. But in those years, they were, you know, they were just, I think, uh, overlooked could be a good word to use. They were certainly not seen as serious, um, you know, competitors for things. And I wanted to be seen as a serious competitor. I was not going to let this stop me. So I, you know, and when I look back, I, I think, did I really do that? But, you know, I did what a lot of people of my generation and previous generations, pro probably not, not after me, you know, doing the on-calls and you're about to drop your baby, despite, you know, the risks that that uh, involved um, uh, doing the 70-hour weeks with newborns. I went back to work six weeks after my first child. I think it was six six weeks, something like that, eight weeks. I mean, it was just ridiculous, ridiculous. Um, and uh, the second child, I, I was in the middle of a, uh, I was I was doing quite a lot of the MD work then, and I had, you know, uh, protected time for that. So that was easier. I also was a bit more organized in knowing what to expect. So I had a nanny to help. But I will say my parents who had been great, as I said, great socialites when I was little and, and not really as present as they might have been, they were very present as grandparents and I relied on them enormously because I look back and I think I was just exhausted all the time. I was very hard on myself. Um, I never let myself do 
less because of the pregnancy or the newborns and 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 that you know again that I'm sure that wasn't healthy um and it's not what I would suggest others should do but it's how I lived it and when I look back on it I kind of you know deep sigh and think thank god I got through it but it wasn't a healthy way of doing it and so my parents moved house and they moved closer to here so uh, because by then they'd moved to England for half of the year so they were around a lot and um, and then I often now and again when I was um, president of the Medical Women's Federation I would sometimes talk to young colleagues who didn't have parents near them some of them didn't have parents at all and I remember you know this empathy, empathy is the other thing I've got probably a lot probably too much of sometimes I I kind of empathize so much I'm almost like you know on the verge of feeling emotional for people sometimes and that's why it's helpful to be a psychiatrist I suppose uh, but sometimes I would feel for these young colleagues you know who didn't have that support because I would think to myself you know how how is it going to work out for you? Which is why I am so passionate about the idea of childcare in hospitals. If I had had that, life would have been so much easier. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate, like most MWF um, presidents, to have been married to a medical person. For some reason, we worked out that nearly all of us had marriages to, to, to medical colleagues. Um, and, and Owen... Uh, took half of the childcare at every step, you know, and if, if, a, if a child was ill, uh, I was very clear that one day was him at home and one day it was me unless anyone else could help. And that was um, very helpful. I, I, I don't think it was just me insisting. I think I married someone who truly believed in equality. And so that was, you know, that worked because, again, you know, you don't go once, you don't go twice, a third time you don't show up to seeing your patients, you know, when you're a junior doctor because your child is at home, that cannot be easy in relation to one's work anxieties. Um, so, yeah. No, I, I, those things are very difficult and, mm. and people people deal with it in, in different ways, don't they? So, I mean, in terms of your personal life, do you think you had to make sacrifices to, to carry on in your career or did it all just come together? Um, well, remember, it, they were never sacrifices because I felt uh, so privileged to have had finally found my life's mission. The first day at medical school, when they said to me, you're going to be here eight hours a day, every single day for the next six years. You are not going to have any time to do anything else. I thought, bring it on. I'm ready, you know. And uh, and so and so everything after that. And now, you know, I I mean, to be honest, even now, every day I wake up and I feel grateful for my profession, for my sense of identity linked to my work. And now, of course, again, being 60 next year, um, for the ability that I have now to influence change at a population level yeah, rather I mean, than just a patient level a huge a huge achievement so we're coming to the to the end of our time now so are there messages that you that you want to give to maybe some some younger women who are listening to you for uh you to be an inspirational role model what what would you say were important things to those aspiring medical leaders um 
so I've got two or three things, really, Jane. I, I think the first thing remains, uh, you've, got, you've got to become an expert at something. You've got to have your niche. You've got to, be, you've got to work out what it is you've got to offer to your profession. Um, so just going in and being, you know, a jobbing doctor, I don't think that's good advice. I think you really should choose what really makes you tick, what you're passionate about and become an expert in something. The world needs experts and recognizes experts. But if you are going to be an expert, then as I was saying earlier, I think you need the skills to be able to deliver what you know. And so you need the public engagement skills, you need the research skills. It doesn't mean you've got to do a doctorate, I'm not in any way suggesting that, but I think you do need to know how to convey these things. Um, I think women often shy away from being competitive. And this is a, a, a I, I could talk for hours about this. Um, I, I personally have thrived um, receiving and being recognized for things I have done. I would say to you that the OBE that I, I received changed the course of my career fully because people started listening to me instead of telling me to shut up. They started to notice what I was saying might be something of value may be worth implementing. It needed an OBE for some people to listen, to be honest, at government level. And I will say to my female colleagues, do not shy away from competing for awards, for prizes, um, to, from being at the top, really, and being a leader rather than to being led. I think too many people are quite happy to be senior enough and being led rather than to say, right, you know, I'm going to change things. Um, always for the good of others. And, and lastly, um, the person before me, so I had the pleasure of being sandwiched um, as president of the Medical Women's Federation between, um, between Parvin Kuma, who came before me, and Nina Modi, who came after me. And I always say, you know, how lovely to be that sort of jam in the middle. But Parveen taught me, whereas Simon Wesley taught me how to speak truth to power and not to stand down if you need to fight for it. I think Parveen taught me kindness and how to support and continue to be kind to all, uh, whoever they might be in whatever situation. And I saw her in the most difficult situations, continuing to retain her professional integrity. And I would say, uh, I would say, I mean, if you need a, a guru, follow Parveen rather than me for sure. But but if I could give you some advice, is do the same that I'm doing now, following Parveen's advice. And it seems to work um, well. Fantastic. So kindness is of course something that Dame Claire Marks, um, who's now sadly died, also tried to to promote in her in her. Um, chairmanship of the General Medical Council. So it's something that seems to be coming into medicine via the via the women route, which is which is lovely to hear. Etta, it's been fantastic to uh, talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm sure that the, the listeners to the podcast will be absolutely inspired by your words of wisdom. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. There are many more medical women talking in this series of podcasts. Please have a listen to some of the other inspiring women. You'll definitely find something to inspire you.